Okay, everyone, let's see, what, see how this goes. It'll be interesting how it fits together. I hope it does. I'll explain as I go why it is a hope. It's not a certainty that it fits together. Um, in part, what I want to do here is uh, I will look at digital university in a sort of explicit way. Um, and there's a theme here about a set of projects going back over 20 years. And again, I hope I can explain that. There will be a focus on two related projects <coughs> where I use video. And it's, in a, in a way, a very simple use of video. Uh, and then at the close of this, I'll move on to looking at things that are beginning to change now. And I hope I can explain that about what might come next or what is already be, uh, coming next. So these are the themes I hope are in here. So th it, uh, this is only in here. It's not just as a reminder to me, it's just a reminder to you. If these don't appear, <laughs> please tell me. So. I'm interested in this idea of the digital university. So there's a book that uh, Mary Lee uh, co-edited uh, on the idea of literacies in the digital university. And in that, I write a chapter about what on earth this thing, the digital university, might mean. And there are some more practical reasons I'll mention later about why that's become, becoming even more of a pressing issue for me. The other loop round in this is this notion of experience. I've become interested recently in if you like, the changing use of notions of experience. And again, I'll talk about an earlier project where we're using a phenomenographic approach, where there's a sort of research basis to the notion of student experience. And there is an odd loop from that through people like Paul Ramsden uh, into the National Student Survey and a hugely com uh, consumer-oriented notion of the student experience. So now... When I talk about student experience, I feel guilty even saying the word because it seems to be associated with all this consumption stuff that student, as a consumer, they've bought this. It's £9,000. What are you giving me for that money? So I'm interested in this area here. I'm also interested in this, and I hope this comes out, the changing nature of the area that I'm looking at. So technology-enhanced learning, network learning, the variety of phrases that are used for it. And Andres... Uh, uh, Vettel wrote a paper a long while ago from Fieldsnet to Internet, written about 2000. So I'm interested in that nature of the, if you like, the shifting patterns of network. So from going into the field as an ethnographer to working in networks and social networks, going on to the Internet. So I'm interested in that notion of network. But I'm also interested in this notion of what is it about the digital? What, what makes this context so unusual, so specific? Uh, is there something to it? Is there something uh, that changes the nature of the kind of research we do? And I mean, this is just a sort of strap line. This is just me trying to think it out. Is there something there about the research? From sort of self-report and observation, those sort of more physical things, asking somebody, whether it's in a survey of some kind or uh, in an interview of some kind, or looking at them, what are they doing? I've asked them what they're doing. I'm going to go have a look at what they're doing now. Two... These machines we now use routinely, I've got one in my pocket, which is probably telling somebody somewhere where I am. I've got another one here that's strapped to some sort of network. These things are logging us, uh, talking about us all the time. So is there something happening here about the digital side of the context we're in, about what's being collected, how it's being collected, and what we could, could or should do with that? 
And that, of course, raises all this stuff about the ethics of this. So just because it's, it's available doesn't mean we should do it. You know, just because this data is collected doesn't mean we should use it in a variety of different ways. So I hope we get towards the ethics and that. And I want to bring, I'll, it should weave through at various points. And I've got a video I'm not even sure I'm going to show you yet. It's trivial, uh, but it's got somebody in there who I did, never asked permission from. And I'll explain that as I come along. And there's all this, I think, very pressing stuff at the moment about uh, learning analytics, learner analytics, whichever phrase you wish to use, about the sort of big data in education and what is being collected, how it's being collected, and who might use it, who is currently using it. Okay, so this is the sort of personal uh, back to this. If the alarm goes off, by the way, don't worry, I used to be a firefighter. <laughs> So, about 20 years ago, I, having exited the fire brigade, um, I did a PhD uh, which was looking at first-class computer conferencing um, on campus, being used for an undergraduate uh, degree course. And when I'm looking at it, it, it was very located. It was networked, but it was very located, and I'll explain a little about that. <coughs> I then, in, after that, 1999, I went to Lancaster University and was working on a project called Network Learning and Higher Education. And there, we started to look at, if you like, much more systematic university uses of. And at the time, most of it was reporting, most of the academic literature was reporting uh, postgraduate students using these things. And we were looking at undergraduate students using new technologies in courses designed in one way or another to incorporate newly deployed by universities uh, technologies and I'll talk a little bit about that project and the kinds of methods that we use there. The main focus is going to be on these two projects uh, which ran from about 2008 to 2012 uh, and they interlink and interweave and that they use video as data uh, uh, and we collected that from students and uh, on the second project uh, from associate lecturers at the Open University too. But I'm going to talk about that and some of the issues that arise around both the collection and the use of that kind of data. What, what we might do with that, what we can do with it. What do we pick up when we use this kind of data? So some of the things that were mentioned earlier on, I think Roman was mentioning what you pick up around. So when you gather this data, one of the interesting things about visual data is how you represent that. And I want to mention some of the issues that arise with that. Um, interestingly, the ESRC, for example, don't ask you to deposit. They ask you to deposit your data, but they don't ask you to deposit the video. I was really quite surprised by this. I was thinking, oh God, how do we do this? What can we leave with them? And they went, no, 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 just the, just the transcripts. So all we gave them were bald transcripts of what was said on a video, which is interesting. Because we could have given them a more audio description-like set of transcripts, but they didn't want very much from us. So there's an interesting thing about what we're archiving in, in terms of data, what the requirements are in the archiving of data. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Okay, starting point. This, this network's Digital University Network. The background for me in this is that, uh, I don't, were you ever caught up in this, Murray? 
There were various people at the OU who were dragged in and described as data wranglers. Oh no! Okay, I was one of these poor beasts. Uh, so in the Open University, they decided they were going to look at learning analytics. Uh, they took gross amateurs like myself, paired them up with a group of people who took the data that the OU already collected, paired it down, and we were given a piece of software called Tableau that represented that data, and we were supposed to make sense of that and pass it on to faculties. So this was an institutional approach to drawing on the data that was already gathered and then representing it to faculties. It faltered, let me say, immediately, because the data wasn't good enough. Uh, you'd try and do something, and then suddenly a message would come through, don't use this data because it's flaky. And then you'd be doing something yourself, and you'd find the data that you were using was flaky, and you'd tell them, and then another message would go out to everyone else going, don't use that bit now, that's flaky. The OU has persisted with this, and is doing some very interesting stuff at the moment about what are the ethics of using this data. So they are, I think, the first university to have actually issued to students guidance on what they're collecting and the ethics of this. So there's some interesting things taking place flowing out of that. I'm now at little John Moore's university, and they have just started, for my sins, I'm on the Institutional IT Committee, uh, and the Senior Management Committee members arrived at a meeting and started to talk about the digital university. So I paused, <laughs> put my hand up and said, this could be using, how are you using this? N nobody really knows. They've picked up this phrase, but they are now talking about LJMU becoming a digital university, by which I think they mean uh, it'll become open to the world. It's, they're viewing it in terms of networks, in terms of how the university can become less encased in physical buildings and more related to digital networks but networks on the same committee uh, at the last meeting the IT manager introduced Microsoft 365 very very positively that we were likely to move to Microsoft 365 cloud computing It'll be stored in Dublin, not on site. Raises huge issues. It's going back to senior management committee. The senior managers sort of paled as this was said. And it was said in almost a technical way that this would be a simple thing to do. But this raises huge questions about when it's Microsoft running this stuff and it's the university data, who's running what on this data? It's already happening with things like Blackboard. But it raises these huge issues. This book's very interesting because it's written from an administrative point of view from, an, from a US university. And he divides, or they divide, universities up into three types. Uh, and I, don't, I, can't, I didn't check, I should have checked before I started here, but it's BLT. Bureaucratic, learner-led, and teacher-led. But it doesn't come in that order. Collegiate University is described as teacher-led. So the organisation, the governance of the institution is, is in the hands of uh, the professoriate, in the hands of the academics. The bureaucratic university is the sort of modern neoliberal university that you'll recognise 
the sort of managerial monsters we all exist in at the moment. The interesting thing for me in this was the third term, the learner-led university, by which they meant the data and algorithmically-led university. What they meant by learner-led was that the data from students would be circulated back and it would be the algorithmic or the administrative tap on your screen that would be managing you as a student. So I don't see this as at all learner-led. I was interested in the way that that was constructed as learner-led. I see that as being led by a data source and that data source would be in somebody's hands it would be in an administrative sort of hands, set of hands, but quite what the administrator looked like, I wasn't sure, because the administrator would be a hybrid of machine and person. So it might be a person who said to you, as a student, you're likely to fail. Uh, you are a student at risk. Anyone use that dashboard currently in Blackboard? Okay, so it's there already, isn't it? Uh, if you take a peek in Blackboard, it already tells you uh, these students are at risk. They haven't been on the, on, on the system for so long. Uh, they haven't uh, submitted their work and so on. So these uh, data collection devices and algorithmic devices for sorting and telling you what the data means are being embedded in the software rounders in the university. So this is my sort of concern, if you like, uh, with the digital university. And I argue that... Uh, while this is complex interweaving themes, there are some known defining features. And I was interested in uh, Bromin's features earlier on uh, with that regard. For this purposes of this today, I pulled out, if you like, four main headings of what I think, um, for our purposes today, are defining features of a digital university. One is this availability of resources, uh, and they come in a variety of types. Um, one of the things that I distinctly remember was uh, reading Arthur on technology on a train to Birmingham from Liverpool uh, to meet an Australian academic. And on arrival, I said to him, uh, I'd been reading this book, and before I finished what I was saying, he turned his iPad round with the book downloaded from Kindle. Now, that's become quite a familiar thing. At the time, I'd not seen that before. Of course, it was very impressive. So this is the sort of thing I'm talking about here. That capacity just to have at your fingertips when you want it, and it can be journal articles, it can be all sorts of things. It can be open educational resources. There's also this archiving of self-produced resources. So where the archive of what you've done in the course becomes a resource in itself. Then there's this capacity to record, store and process data, which is becoming critically important in relation to big data, in relation to learning analytics. And the sort of mash-up, you know, the ability of these things to, once it's digitised, you can do all sorts with it. Uh, you can edit it on the fly, you can mash it up, mix it with something else. That ability to manipulate and combine is something to do with the digitality of it. So that, if you remember on the previous slide, I was trying to separate out, there are network, digital network aspects of this. 
but there are aspects which are to do with the digital phenomena itself, the technology, the digitization that's taking place, the zeros and ones. And this stuff takes place not at the level of the person, and I think this is one of the ways that this is another lens on everything. So I'm sort of helicoptering out slightly, not to a hugely high level, but away from the person, uh, from what people might describe as the individual, towards people in contexts designed by others for certain purposes, into infrastructures. And these infrastructures are these hybrid things. So when uh, an academic uses the analytics in Blackboard, this isn't the academic alone, this is the academic plus. This is some form of hybrid of human and machine. It's not someone doing it themselves. And there is this hybridity as well between the institutional and the universal. So I mentioned before, the university I'm in is going to Microsoft 365, and I suspect if I asked around the room, some of the universities will have gone into cloud computing, either in Google Apps or something else. And this raises huge questions about where things are, who, ha who has control of these. There was a legal case in the United States a few years ago now where Google Apps were data mining K-12 school kids. They want to know what you're going to do when you get older and they can advertise to you. So they were data mining school kids. <coughs> when we have this interweaving of institutional patterns, which we're familiar with, with these now universal service patterns, which we're used to in another context, when they merge together, this is going to raise all sorts of issues, many of them of an ethical character, about who's running what on the data, about who owns and stewards the data. So these are the sorts of things I think the digital university and, the, if you like, these characteristics bring to a head. And I think some of these, the final point here, are, are, are I guess, more familiar. It's that... It's that I want to talk in a moment about the, the, the shift in terms of mobility and how much stuff is now moved around. In informal conversation when I arrived here, I was saying that in a class this year, for the first time, I don't stop people using handheld devices. Uh, but I was struck by the fact that it was about 30% of the room were using handheld devices. And at a certain point, I had a short discussion with them saying, you know, if you're using this to access resources related to what I'm saying, keep doing it. However, if you're currently on Facebook talking to your mates, I recommend you stop that now because you'll need to hear what I'm about to say. These devices really do interrupt the flow, if you like. What is it? Well, the classroom, we're all here now. There are some people tweeting. There's not a huge flow on Twitter, but you can be Googling these books, you can be pulling up. Uh, he says he's done these other projects. What were they? Uh, what were the what were the outcomes of that? You can be doing that while I'm speaking. So it sort of dissolves the physical space or merges it with a networked space. So this is becoming interesting, and it's the ubiquity of the networks. So you know, horror of horrors. Before when I sat down, I'd remembered to put my phone on the wireless network here. I'd forgotten to put my laptop on and had to rush out at lunchtime and quickly get my laptop connected. But these networks are now all over the place. I mean, you, 
you can go to the other side of the world now and strap onto Edurome probably more reliably than you can to the university down the road. Why? I don't know, but that seems to be the way it operates. Yeah. Okay, anyone remember these? I had yeah. one. Yeah. The, the course I was talking about for the PhD ran on one of those. That's what it ran on. Um, so it was a, con a, a, a course running on first-class computer conferencing, an astonishingly robust piece of software. Uh, it's only just been... Uh, decommissioned in the OU for running 200,000 student emails but you could run it on a desktop for small scale courses astonishing flexible piece of software Re I really loved first class did all sorts ran on first class anyone using who well let's say who wasn't using computers in 1994 be honest who wasn't using computers uh, it's important because I think I need to step through a couple of the features of what was going on at the time. So people were using this, it's an online course designed to be online, but most students then accessed this on site because there were no networks off site. You could dial in, but you were paying for a telephone call, so it sounded just like a fax machine when it warbled down the line to the other end. So. I would dial in from home. Very few students did. Some young Asian women did, because presumably it was about mobility restrictions. They would dial in. They would use telephone time to contact. But very few did. So it was designed for on-site and off-site access. And it had what would later be called blended learning. You know, you could uh, you'd, um, be on-site for a couple of meetings, but the idea was that the students would follow the course largely using the online stuff. I was doing this um, in what I would describe as sort of an ethnographic style, is it an ethnography? I hung around this course for two years, for two academic years. So from start to finish, I would knock about with the students, knock about with the staff. I knew where they'd eat their coffees, when they'd have lunch. Fortunately, these were really good. So they went to the Mac lab and not the PC lab, because the PC lab was still in that really horrible uh, form of Windows before NT. I can't remember what it was, but it was a really, you know, it, what, the graphical user interface wasn't very graphical. It wasn't much of an interface, whereas the Apple Mac looked like a modern machine. Uh, the, the web was brand new. Uh, my first use of Mosaic was in 1994 where you click on a website and you, I'd read the paper while the page downloaded. And when Netscape came out, it was wonderful because it would scroll down as it got the information. So you didn't have to wait, so it would, all, it would come down. So the web was brand new here. So this is internet technology rather than web technology, although it's on a graphical user interface. Now, Methodologically, the interesting thing about that is that I really did very much a standard ethnography, but I'm already using the digital capacities of the machinery. So I have a transcript of everything that took place in this. And one of the papers I wrote afterwards is about the unreliability of that transcript. Uh, and there was one particular case uh, which illustrated that for me and allowed me to talk about it. And that was four students. I'm in the back of a MATLAB. They're in the middle of the MATLAB. I watched them fabricate working online collaboratively. 
They understood from the tutor that's what they were supposed to be doing, so they cooperated face-to-face -face in the MATLAB, and if you looked at the transcript and didn't concern yourself with the timestamps, it wouldn't have been obvious that they were fabricating a collaborative exchange. So they were cooperating to collaborate. So this is very much a standard ethnography, despite the digital technology and despite the network capacity of this. Uh, the transcript begins to offer something new. Uh, also, these machines, some of the students were very aware of the fact that these machines could log them. And they did have discussions both with the tutor for this course and with me as a researcher about whether and how we would use the logging on this. And I think that's quite interesting because they were aware of it then. I think, I, in fact, I'm pretty certain if I asked any of my current students, they would not be aware of it. So because it was brand new, even though the actual logging that was done and the capacity to log on this was quite limited, they were very aware of it. Okay, the, the one that followed this is more like this. This is me, a younger, slimmer version, um, around 1999, in uh, a course, this is a postgraduate course, taught online, where there were residentials. This is taken from a residential, but the bulk of the activity was online at a distance. <coughs> the research we did uh, was with undergraduate students, not postgraduate, in a variety of contexts. So we looked at uh, video conferencing. Uh, I looked at OU students. Uh, we had uh, one um, uh, tutor group that we followed. So we I would go and visit the tutor groups. I would go to, when they had meetings on site, I'd go to those. And we interviewed the students and we used a form of stimulated recall where what we would ask them to do is to access the site that they were, the course site, and talk through what they did on that site, what was their activity. So it was a way of trying to focus their self-report on something they actually did day to day. So it was trying to get some focal awareness onto, instead of a general, what do you think of teaching using the internet, into you're on this course, what do you, what do, you do when you, when you sit down and you want to do this course? How do, how do you get into it? What, what resources are there there? Uh, oh, this, this discussion group, what are you doing on that discussion group? So the idea was the interview was focused on an interaction at the computer but again, this was highly located. You could dial in from the outside. And again, this was uh, Asian young women from East Lancashire, from Blackburn, places like that, who were the people who would dial in. But it, it was not something people routinely did. However, this was some of it on campus universities. And on the campus universities, this is the beginning of the student study bedroom with university speed internet access. So the people who were on campus or who had uh, wired networks were beginning to use off-campus uh, access away from uh, computer labs to interact with the courses they were, they were, they were, uh, they were engaged with. So there's a, a shift beginning to take place, I hope you can see, uh, from something that's still very located with digital capacities to something that's becoming less physically located. 
Uh, the video conferencing, of course, is. It was on two sites. My favourite story of this was that uh, people at the remote site used to go to sleep. This was not uncommon. One time I was there and a student went to sleep at the sending site. I thought this was slightly unusual and went to speak to him afterwards. This was a very studious student who read up before. It was econometrics and if, it was, if there was nothing new in the lecture, <laughs> he'd just chill out and in this case fell asleep because there was nothing new in the lecture. He prepared for it. So the fact that he'd gone to sleep was not an indicator that this was somebody not engaged. This actually indicated when you spoke to him, this was a student who was highly engaged with the course and just didn't need the lecture, but attended in case something new or novel came up. Okay, this was followed by a, looking at this whole thing of digital natives, which I am very uh, sceptical about, to say the least. But I wanted to look at that notion applied to uh, university students as they entered university. Um, and as part of that, it fitted in again, if you, it follows that we did surveys, we did interviews, we did observation, document collection, so we knew about the courses, we went, spoke to the academics teaching the courses, uh, got literature about what they were doing on those courses. Um, but the, this is the bit I want to focus on. We did a cultural probe, which was day, based on the day experience method um, uh, by Matt Riddle, who was then at Cambridge. He's an Australian academic uh, who at that time was, was situated at Cambridge. So we sent text messages to students, about 11 in a 24-hour period, automated uh, texts with set questions for the responses, and we sent them, uh, or gave them rather, little handheld video cameras, Vardo and Flip, which you wouldn't have to do now. You could say, use your phone, please. So that was what we used. Um, we also gave them a little notebook, and some did use that. Some wrote handheld logs. You know, they would, it would be more convenient to them, or they didn't like using the video camera for a variety of reasons. 18 uh, participants in that we couldn't recruit anyone from the OU, which is one of the things which intrigued us uh, and got us into the next project, because that was OU-based. It was an institutional project. It's to do with being at a distance. We reconfigured it for OU students so that it wasn't over 24 hours. It was over a week. But they were the one group of students that didn't recruit this. We got volunteers from, from uh, other universities. Okay, so this is what we, we were up to. And I want to show you some of these and raise some of the issues that it gave us. Uh, just have a look at the, the, the text there. That, that is a transcription of what is about to be said. Mature, by the way, simply means they're over 20. So we... Everyone over 20 we classified as mature. Young students are anyone under 20. Okay, so now this is the video that comes from. Hello, as you can see, the fish are going to sleep. It's really quiet. Don't think you'll be able to see the dragon. Use that. Oh, yeah, you break that. <laughs> Um, 
all the washing to dry. Make a coffee and go start my next lot work. Okay, everybody else has left me. So, you're very tired now. Okay, bye bye. Okay, I think this is here to illustrate the difference between that and what you've just watched. They're, they are different things. Uh, we tried in some, and you'll see later some of the transcription, we tried to add audio description of things. So the camera pans around a darkened room. So you, you, you add a sort of textual version of that. But even the tone of voice in that is carrying a lot of meaning. So there's something about the representation of data gathered in this manner. What do we do about that? Uh, how, how do we put that into an academic article? Uh, does it mean we have to have additional materials where you can click on a link to, to view the video if you want to be able to talk about, about, talk about what emotional tone that has, uh, what it tells you about so when she says she's tired, if you listen to it, it sounds quite different. This is someone for whom she, the day's really ended for everybody bar her. And she's just setting off on her work. So th it's about how we represent the data when we've collected it in this sort of format. This is one of the things we got from this whole project. It's about locations. I want to show you two about locations. This one is a very basic one. In the last one, that's very standard as well, That a, a room, either a small room, sometimes with washing in. A lot of people would do, you know, where the room they'd have the little thing, the little stand with all the washing on. There'd be a corner of that with a computer in it and a few books. But there was, a very standard thing was to carve out a space somewhere. And this is a, a, a university student study bedroom. And it's just how that space is being used. So it's... Um Nine o'clock now, and I'm still doing my homework. It's different now at this time, but um, I'm using my laptop again on Facebook and RC's and MSN to talk to my friends. Um, I've always got like um, an online dictionary in here, which is helping me write the news and the book because it's much quick, like a proper dictionary because it's much quicker. Um, and yeah, I'm in my room, so like surrounded by all my stuff, which um, I like. I like going to podcast time as well, but that's not a, like night. Okay, and again, the video's telling you as a bit more than what you've got there, and certainly displaying how that room is structured, the, the student study bedroom, and what that, what that actually means. So this is a second location. Again, this is a location that's become more and more familiar. So we had, in the earlier days, if I wanted to go and look for people, I'd go to computer labs. And the Mac lab was a relatively small lab and a relatively pleasant one. It wasn't just the machinery people went for. A lot of them, if you remember, were in dungeons hidden underneath the ground. Um, so this is a, a quick uh, look at this second site. I've realised my timing's not, not, not the best here. Whoop, I'll go back. <laughs> The 
Microsoft OneNote. And for note taking, Microsoft Word. And WebCT, which I'm currently downloading some assignments of. Um, I'm on my own, doing work, and the environment I'm sitting in is comfortable, as you can see. Which is uh, fairly busy as well. I'm currently using my laptop for doing my studies and mobile phone for communicating with other students. Okay, there's a couple of things I want to pull out from that. One is the phone, okay, which is a feature phone, probably had internet access, probably not used at all for internet access. At this point, there was a small percentage of the students we surveyed had smartphones. Uh, we have video of one or two using Blackberries. Then the it was iPhones or Blackberries at the time. Um, who has a Blackberry now? Um, which that's a story in its own right, isn't it? The, the, the shift in that period. But the smartphone still wasn't really being used. So we could still use locations at this point in a way that I think is becoming less and less likely. Uh, so there are these sort of comfy learning areas that universities have provided on campuses. You have people in study bedrooms, but locations are still there and could be available for researchers to go to. I think that's becoming less and less the case. Uh, I won't run the video on this just for time purposes. Uh, one of the other things that we got from these sorts of videos, uh, in this there's a description about using a variety of different <coughs> software, but we would often get students where you would look across the bottom and they'd have a load of different things open. We had come into this project with a notion that people would have technologies for social life and technologies for learning. And some of that was from Gregor Kennedy's work in Australia. It became very apparent very quickly, especially looking at the video, that actually students were toggling between both. They were never in one or the other. They were always in and out of both. And we had a, uh, an article that we wrote about um, distraction and how students manage distraction, which was related to this, to the pop-ups that come here. Somebody sent a message, somebody's doing this, this has just happened, that has just happened. So there's something happened where, again, this is about the relocation that's taking place. So it's not just a physical relocation <coughs> from the study bedroom, specific spaces, the computer lab, uh, the learning resource area. It's also this translation of this interface into something where you're toggling through various different aspects of your life constantly, all the time. This goes from there onto mobile devices. Now this is the, the, the video, I'm not going to click through on this. Uh, this is the same student that was in that uh, learning resource centre. And the interesting thing here is this. Uh, the technology I'm using is a laptop. I'm on Skype to my friend. You can see him there, say hello, and he says hello. He's from Wigan, so he talks like this. I'm using my mobile phone as well. Who am I with? I'm not with anybody at the moment. And then he oh, apart from... <laughs> So there's this interesting thing about when you're present and when you're not. 
Uh, and why I'm not running this, of course, is that you can, it's video Skype, you, you can see the guy, I've got no permission whatsoever uh, to, to, to show him, I've got permission from the students, I've got lots of video, there's a video in one case where they're in a study bedroom, people playing a game, people doing work, people sitting all over the bed, there's about nine people in the room, I've got permission from one of them, what do I do in those cases? Can I, could I get permission from the others? So there's this question about, you know, what can, what can I use and what purposes can I use it for? When can I use it? Is it? I'm okay to use the text here, but to show his face, is that okay? I mean, you're in a room, it's not being videoed, it's not being shown anywhere, but could I show that? Would it be ethically appropriate for me to show that video with that other person in it? Again, I'm not going to dwell on this. This was here, again, to talk about how we treat these in the, uh, the work that we did at the OU, um, we had about 21 students, seven associate lecturers, and we had three intervention points in a course. So one where they were submitting a tutor-marked assessment, one at the very beginning. We interviewed the students at the beginning and the end. So we had quite a lot of data from this, and it was how do you do that? And we, we treated it very traditionally. And what I had to show here was a clip, and then to show it re-edited in a presentation we gave, where you got a tutor then the, the clip, and then another tutor following. So again, it's about what happens when we take this video and we treat it like uh, quotes or something and string them together. And play So this is coming out of the context it was taken in, and it was interweaved between two, two, two tutors' comments. That's hard to say. So you've got, is, is that the same thing when it's interwoven like that? What have I done with it? <coughs> This is the OU report that we did. It, it was available at, at, in uh, Word or PDF, but we did it as an ebook. And within the ebook, we'd have stills here, you could play the video there, and then there'd be a transcript that followed underneath. So we were experimenting with what can you do with this? So, again, this thing of do you need to see the raw stuff? Is it enough to have a transcript or just a still? Or do you actually need to see the video? I'm not sure if that's... Yes, that is the one. This is a, a, a woman who's um, out with her husband. Her husband's visiting somewhere, and she's in the car doing her OU studies. So she's sitting in the car, mainly with paper, not with electronic equipment, but that's where she's studying, in a car, waiting for her husband who's on a visit somewhere. So it, the video tells you... It, it tells you something more than you can get from the transcription it tells you more than you can get from the still. Do we now need to put that in the documentation that we use? If we do, what would it look like? Uh, I have this still. It no longer runs the video because the video is on OU servers and this is a document which is for OU internal consumption. If we are going to do that, where are we going to put the video? Where can we have that stable? Is it going to be embedded into the document itself in the way that I've embedded the video into the PowerPoint here? <coughs> Okay, so these are some of the issues that surround using, in a way, very conventional data. Just asking students, instead of self-report in the sense of asking them what they've done, giving them prompts to record, using a video, the sorts of things we might have asked them about. So in a way, very traditional stuff. What comes next?
I like my communicator. Why do I like my communicator? Somebody in visiting the future, late 1960s, early 1970s, they could beam people onto planets, but it doesn't have a screen, it doesn't have a touch screen, there's no keyboard. You know, it's not a computer. My phone's better than that, even though I can't beam myself onto the planet. <laughs> so, this, this, this is here's caution. What comes next, <coughs> we don't know. <laughs> Could be very different. Okay, this interests me, and I know it interests some others in the room, about using uh, some methods derived from actor network theory, about following the actor. There's a doctoral student that I'm working with at the moment, Phil uh, Duggan, who's looking at... Uh, a, an e-portfolio as an actor. So the, not only is it an actor, but he's acting as a manager using this actor. So he has a Machiavellian role in managing this actor to manage staff and students. So there's an interesting thing about what happens next in that this hybridity that's being built in to these complex systems and infrastructures we're using about if we are following the actor, quite what the actor is. Uh, and in, in this case, I think it becomes quite uh, sort of melded together in some sort of hybrid form. And then we need to disentangle what those hybrid forms mean, about what degree of intentionality there is in there. I will come to a conclusion now. Okay, I've got to miss the bottom bit off. So I... Okay, so th this is where I want to head to. Again, there's a st I mentioned the story before about uh, learner analytics at the OU, and ethics is now being discussed by the Joint Information System Systems Committee in the UK. And I've put a few uh, references at the back, which I would really encourage you to look at. There's an excellent literature review by Neil Slater about learner analytics and about the ethical issues in part that surround that. There is a consultation taking place, which I would encourage you to engage in. What we have is a lot of data being automatically collected within universities. So whether people call themselves a digital university or not, the technologies we have deployed are collecting that data. And at some point, someone will say, what can we do with that data? About a year ago, because I was uh, writing a bid, I asked the question... <coughs> What data do we have and what can I do with it? And nobody knew. Nobody knew quite what data we had and certainly nobody knew what the ethical issues would be if I, as a researcher, wished to access it. So this is a pressing question and I'm really glad that JISC are doing this work on it. So encouragement for you to get engaged in that. Um, is this stuff useful? Remember this thing about the transcript? Transcript showed students collaborating. What is this stuff showing? H how would we methodologically need to deploy learner analytics in order to make it useful? Um, another PhD student I'm working with at the moment, Peter Reed, is looking at, for example, uh, using EduRome on a university campus to log positions of the IP addresses of students. And the logic of this is not to track the students, it's with their permission, but, um, but to find where they congregate. And having found where they congregate, for him to be able to observe them. So using the analytics 
to support a very traditional observational technique. Where are students congregating? Can I go and see who they're, what they're doing, who they're meeting with? Part of this is with medical students and trying to nav navigate what sort of linkages are they making both as students in the campus, but also professional networks that they're developing while they're students with doctors and other medical professions external to the university. So the project is about tracking people across networks and looking at how that informs their educational experiences. We've also looked at using all sorts of specialist software about putting onto people's many devices. How do you even electronically track somebody if you've got uh, a laptop, a tablet, you're using a university machine, sometimes when you haven't brought anything in, and you've got your phone. So we thought of using specialist software, in this case Rescue Time Pro, <coughs> which was just to stick it on people's machine with their permission and see what they did over a short period of time. A week, we were thinking, would be reasonable. We don't know. We were thinking, we've tried using this. We don't think this gives you very much useful stuff. Uh, you get an awful lot of images. This just take. anyone know about auto F? Yeah. This is, just takes photographs. So as you're going about your daily business, it just keeps taking photographs. But again, it's a way of, in a network distributed setting, how do we know what people are doing? You might get a load of junk in there, but you may also get little nuggets in there that really do start to explain what students are doing in this very dispersed network of activity that they have. And I think... Ah... There's a, again, I won't dwell on this. I'll leave you to look at this uh, in the slides when they become available. I find this very interesting, and it's these two I find very interesting. Again, about learner analytics. That derived data, um, where it's other data. So, for example, looking at students at risk. So you've told the students you're collecting their data, but then you manipulate it, which shows that they're at risk. Do they understand that? If you've got inferred data, if you start using much more complex analytics, do people understand the algorithms that you're applying to the data they've agreed for you to collect? So just collecting data and getting permission to collect data doesn't deal with these issues further down the line. Um, again, I won't dwell on this, but the idea was to draw this towards a conclusion on the ethics. Um, so if you just, if you read this later, I'm being pointed out to me that I'm running over, so I'll, I, won't, I won't talk through that. Okay, and then there's some references I've put at the end of that.